for lads making more dough than lasses. See, Bernie is a girl's best friend. Maternity leave ain't just for the upper classes. It's beyond berserk. To rush back to work, boss, don't be a jerk. And girls, please assume you own your womb, no matter whom you offend. And don't be afraid for all medicines paid for. Bernie is a girl's best friend. And that was Bernie is a Girl's Best Friend by Bard for Bernie Sanders, which you can find on YouTube by searching for Bard for Bernie Sanders. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. If you want to send me a message, you can reach out at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com, or you can follow on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can check out back episodes and some other links, as well as a link to my Patreon page if you want to donate to support this podcast. You can find that at Bernie-2016.com. And getting started today... Today, as often has been in the past, it is the eve of the Wisconsin primary, and uh, we will uh, talk a little bit more about Wisconsin later on. But as uh, not unusual, I do have some news about some past primaries, and this one actually goes back quite a ways. Uh, This first piece is from the Washington Post and it is written by John Wagner. John Wagner is one of the best uh, reporters from any of the corporate media out there that's following the Bernie Sanders campaign. Very fair and balanced reporting consistently coming from John Wagner of the Washington Post. And what what uh, prior event are we talking about today? We're actually talking about Nevada. Nevada was the uh, third state to vote in this primary election. And there's some recent very good news out of Nevada for Bernie Sanders. In another sign of the fight left in Bernie Sanders' campaign, the Democratic presidential hopeful appears to have picked up at least a couple of delegates in Nevada, a state where Hillary Clinton was declared the winner on February 20. Clinton emerged on caucus day with a lead of 20 to 15 in statewide delegates, according to a report from Nevada. That margin has narrowed to 18 to 17 after a second round in the process known as the county conventions, which took place Saturday. Sanders supporters flooded the largest of those in Clark County, where Las Vegas is located. A result of his organizational muscle and some complicated rules, the senator from Vermont managed to garner more support there than Clinton, despite her edge on February 20. Sanders also reportedly outperformed his February 20 showing in other counties. So, and I have another story coming up as well on Nevada. So the, the process in, in the Nevada caucus and in many caucuses out there is pretty complicated. It's multiple steps. The first step, which we've seen in many of these states so far, is the state votes to elect delegates to go to the county caucus. And then at the county caucus, which is what just happened in Nevada, those county caucuses elect delegates to go to the state caucus. And then at the state caucus is where the final delegate selection gets chosen to go to the national uh, national event in Philadelphia in the summer. So uh, on to the second story I have here. And this second story is from Inquisitor.com. And let me scroll down and find the author here. And this is actually obscured on my page. Let me see if I can highlight it. 
Uh, I only can see the first name at the moment on this page, and the first name is Zachary. And let me see if I can do something to uh, Zachary Volk, V-O-L-K-E, is the author of this piece on Inquisitor.com. Bernie Sanders has retroactively won the Nevada caucus in terms of delegates. His renewed lead in the state's race came from a strong showing of supporters at some of the state's Democratic conventions. Hillary Clinton originally beat out Bernie by comfortable margin in the Nevada caucuses. She came in with 52.6% of the vote to Sanders' 47.3%. In terms of delegates, she won 20 to his 15. Those numbers will now be in Bernie's favor due to how the voting panned out at the state's Democratic County conventions. Even though Hillary should have technically had the most votes to reflect her win in the Nevada caucus, it seemed that many who had volunteered to represent her either didn't show up or changed their mind. This disadvantage wouldn't have been quite so fatal if such a large number of Sanders alternates hadn't also shown up to state conventions. The Las Vegas Sun explained how Nevada's caucuses work and why all of these factors resulted in Clinton losing her lead. Quote, the county convention was the second in a three-step process for Nevada to choose its delegates to send to the Democratic National Convention this summer. The first was the February caucuses, the results of which are used to apportion 23 of the delegates Nevada will send to the National Convention. The second step, the county convention, is when delegates are selected to the state convention in May. The third step is the state convention, when 12 more delegates are apportioned based on attendees' preferences. At the Clark County Democratic Convention, by far the largest in the state, Sanders ended up with 2,964 representatives to Hillary's 2,386 That means around 5,357 showed up out of nearly 9,000 who had committed to do so. Washoe County, the the state's second largest population center, sent 350 delegates for Bernie and 275 for Clinton. While a few of the state's districts did tilt Hillary, the grand majority swung in Sanders' direction. John Cato, Bernie's state director, sorry, Joan, Joan Cato, Bernie's state director, stood in awe as the votes were announced. Quote, we pretty much won Nevada. Still, that doesn't mean that Clinton's original win of the Nevada caucuses doesn't count for anything. Of the 43 delegates offered by the state, 23 of them, district level, are bound to the way they were voted upon in the February caucus. Those will remain split 12 to 11 in Hillary's favor. Sanders picked up what appears to be a decisive victory when it comes to how the other 12 will be divided up. No one is quite sure just how many delegates for Bernie that will translate into. Estimates have ranged between 1 and 10, with the majority putting their faith into the lower end of the spectrum. Local Nevada pundit political commentator Ralston reports estimated 2, but also noted that the good news for Sanders for Sanders' delegate count could still change. Quote, That is expected to switch to two delegates to Sanders, giving Clinton an 18-17 lead in Nevada, but that is still pending the results of the state convention next month, when those 12 slots could change again. Sanders also dominated in Washoe and did elsewhere, and, and did well elsewhere. Ah, the caucus process. So, a fair chance that Nevada has flipped and uh, actually will give end up giving more delegates to Bernie Sanders than to Hillary Clinton, despite her initial win in the first round in the in the uh, Nevada caucuses that happened way back in beginning in in February or the beginning of March. I can't even remember exactly when those happened. Um, they they were, as I said, the third contest in this season's uh, elections. And so there's a fair chance that, that Nevada will flip and Bernie will get more delegates than, than Hillary. Uh, there's a possibility that Hillary will hang on and, and get one or two more delegates than Bernie Sanders will end up with. But it seems clear after the results at the, um, at the district level caucuses 
that uh, or the county level at the county level caucuses that the um, and actually those aren't called caucuses. Those are called conventions, but they do vote similar to the way that the caucus votes. So there is a fair chance that uh, or, or it's pretty, pretty well certain that after the county level caucuses, Bernie Sanders will gain on what his original results were coming out of the uh, state or the overall caucuses, the precinct level caucuses that uh, were voted on earlier in the season. So in any event, um, enormous dedication from Bernie Sanders delegates heading to those county caucuses in Nevada and showing up in greater numbers than Hillary Clinton's delegates did and actually turning the tide in Clark County and uh, p- gaining in Washoe County, as well as in some other locations in Nevada. So uh, really underlines the need for us to be persistent and consistent in our support for Bernie and to not waver despite the media and many uh, news sources out there, you know, saying it's over and Bernie should uh, pack it up and throw in the towel. So uh, Bernie certainly has no intention of doing so, nor should he. Uh, Hillary Clinton stayed into the convention when she ran against uh, Barack Obama, and there is absolutely no reason whatsoever for Bernie to do anything differently, especially when he's won six out of the last seven co- uh, contests and is on the eve of winning in Wisconsin. And uh, we need to, to build the momentum for Bernie Sanders and not consider, you know, letting up on our desire and our forcefulness um, to continue this fight and to win this election for Bernie Sanders. And this next piece is from fair.org. It's F-A-I-R. Dot org. And this is by Jim Norekis. When media outlets check the facts, it's supposed to be in the first sense Google's dictionary offers for the word check. One, examine something in order to determine its accuracy. But sometimes media seem more intent on carrying out the second meaning of the word. Two, stop or slow down the progress of something undesirable. That's the approach that NPR's Peter Overby seemed to take when he wrote a, quote, fact check about a controversy involving Hillary Clinton and fossil fuel money. Online, NPR displayed a video clip of an encounter between Hillary Clinton and a Greenpeace activist. The activist, Eva Resnick Day, says, quote, Thank you for tackling climate change. Will you act on your words and reject future fossil fuel money in your campaign? To which Clinton responds, I do not have, I have money from people who work for fossil fuel companies. I am so sick. I am so sick of the Sanders campaign lying about me. I'm sick of it. Resnick Day, who says she was, quote, genuinely shocked by Clinton's response, states she is, quote, in no way affiliated with the Sanders campaign. NPR's Overby does quote Sanders spokesperson Michael Briggs, though, with Overby characterizing the quote as the Sanders campaign taking the opportunity, quote, to pounce on Clinton. And that quote from Michael Briggs is, The truth is that Secretary Clinton has relied heavily on funds from lobbyists working for the oil and coal, oil, gas and coal industry. So the fact checker's job is to determine whether Clinton is right to say that she just gets money from people who work for fossil fuel companies and that the Sanders campaign is lying about this or whether the Sanders campaign is actually correct in saying that she relies heavily on funds from fossil fuel lobbyists, right? See, that's why you don't have a job at NPR. Overby's job, as he interprets it, is just to confirm that Clinton was indeed accurate in saying that she accepts money from people who work for fossil fuel companies. 
Quote, the Center for Responsive Politics, parsing Federal Election Commission reports, finds that workers in the oil and gas industries have given Clinton $307,561 so far, compared to, say, $21 million from the securities and investment industry or $14.4 million from lawyers and law firms. Put another way, the oil and gas money is two-tenths of one percent of Clinton's $159.9 million overall fundraising. If there is an, quote, implication that dirty energy has got her on a string, Overby observes, campaign finance data suggests it wouldn't be much of a string. But what about, quote, lobbyists working for the oil, gas, and coal industry? Isn't that what Sanders is supposed to be lying about, to the point of making Hillary Clinton sick? To give him credit, Overby is good enough to tell us what he isn't telling us. Quote, the industry total here doesn't include lobbyists with fossil fuel clients, and it doesn't do what the Republican opposition research group America Rising did, include corporate money to the Clinton Foundation. The presidential campaign cannot raise corporate money. Well, why not include lobbyists with fossil fuel clients, since that is what the Sanders campaign, like other critics, was explicitly talking about? According to Greenpeace, Clinton has gotten $1,465,610 in bundled and direct donations from lobbyists currently registered as lobbying for the fossil fuel industry. That's quite a bit more string. And corporations can't give directly to campaigns, but they can give to super PACs that support campaigns. Greenpeace cites $3,250,000 in donations from large donors connected to the fossil fuel industry to Priorities Action USA, a super PAC supporting Secretary Clinton's campaign. That works out to $5 million altogether. It's hard to say what the going rate for buying a presidential candidate is, but unlike Overby, I wouldn't refer to Clinton's fossil fuel industry contributions as, quote, paltry. And even though Overby wants you, warns you away from looking at the Clinton Foundation because it's the sort of thing a, quote, Republican opposition research group would do, you don't need to go to a middleman. The Clinton Foundation lists its donors on its website. There, you can learn that the foundation has received at least $10 million from Saudi Arabia, at least $5 million from Kuwait, as well as from oil refining billionaire Mohammed H. Al-Amudi, at least $1 million from ExxonMobil, natural gas producer Shanir Energy, Qatar, Oman, United Arab Emirates, the Dubai Foundation, Friends of Saudi Arabia, etc. Those are the facts. NPR did its best to stop or slow them down. And this next piece is from isonline.com. And this is by Enrique Figueroa. It is called, Our Country's Future is Brighter Under a Sanders Presidency. I was a political appointee in the second Clinton administration. It was an honor and a privilege to serve our country in such a senior position, and I forever will be thankful and loyal to President Bill Clinton. I was a supporter of Hillary Clinton in 2008, as well as during the beginning of 2015, but I no longer can be her supporter. Why? Integrity, money, electability, and Senator Bernie Sanders. This has been quite a difficult decision for me, but it is the right decision and one that I hope others make as well. Quote, I don't like her, I don't trust her, but I got to vote for her, unquote, is what I hear from my good friends and fellow Clinton voters. Until now, I have felt I had to vote for her because of my loyalty to her husband and to the, quote, establishment that I was a part of during my service in our nation's capital. But given that I champion integrity to my students, I cannot do what my fellow voters may do. There is a real question in my mind with regards to the trustworthiness and integrity of Clinton that prevents me from voting for her. The latest issue is her refusal to release her speeches to Wall Street audiences. What is there that she doesn't want the public to know? 
We are in a period in our nation's history when the Citizens United case has profoundly affected how our democracy can function. For example, the people with the most money will have the most influence in who we elect to administer our democracy. In turn, such large political contributions, investments, have translated into the enormous and growing income inequality that also does not contribute to a healthy democracy. Finally, there are the billions we have spent in a, as a country fighting wars that have had a tremendous toll on our military personnel and to the many civilians who have lost their lives. Clinton, through her acceptance of PAC money, fosters our current political state, while Sanders generated $44 million in the month of March with, without accepting PAC money. Clinton, through her vote in supporting the invasion of Iraq, which many say led to the creation of ISIS, contributed to the billions spent on the war, while Sanders did not support the invasion. Turnout in the Democratic primaries is low relative to Republican primary turnout, and if it wasn't for the large and enthusiastic numbers that Sanders' candidacy has engendered, turnout would be very low. Clinton has augmented her delegate count in states that most, if not all, political observers know will be red states in November. In swing states, which will decide the November election, Sanders has won or basically tied. Iowa, Nevada, and Colorado. Most important, voters under 30, who are our future leaders, support Sanders by huge margins, and they will be a key voting demographic in November. Polls indicate that both Clinton and Sanders defeat Trump in November, but Sanders defeats him by a larger margin. What we don't know is whether Trump will be the Republican candidate. What if he isn't the candidate? Will Sanders be the more electable candidate as compared to Clinton? I say yes, for Clinton does not engender enthusiasm, while Sanders does. We need to elect a president who does not accept PAC money and is not a billionaire. We need to elect a president who has the large and enthusiastic support of our young people, for they need to feel that their support matters to the future of a healthy democracy. We need to elect a president who intimately recognizes the serious damage our current income inequality has done and will do to the non-one percenters. Finally, it should be clear that the Latino vote is not disproportionately in Clinton's camp, even though the media may want us to believe such an assertion. Large numbers of Latinos supported Sanders in Nevada, Colorado, Michigan, Illinois, and Arizona. So it is with some trepidation, out of respect, and some fear from my good friends and Clinton supporters, that I wrote this piece, but it is one that I had to write. Our country's future is brighter under a Sanders presidency. And up next is a story from Politico.com by Nick Gass, G-A-S-S. Bernie Sanders broke his monthly fundraising record in March, pulling in more than $44 million, his campaign announced Friday, following the midnight filing deadline with the FEC. Quote, what this campaign is doing is bringing together millions of people, contributing an average of just $27 each to take on a billionaire class, which is so used to buying elections, Sanders said in a statement released through the campaign. Quote, working people standing together are going to propel this campaign to the Democratic nomination and then the White House. The total broke Sanders' record $43.5 million set in February, bringing the Vermont senator's total for the first quarter to $109 million. According to the campaign, Sanders has received more than $6.5 million individual contributions from 2 million donors. Quote, I don't think I'm too far off to say that this is a headline few in the political establishment would have thought possible even a couple of months ago. Quote, Bernie Sanders outraises Hillary Clinton for third month straight, aims to win Wisconsin on Tuesday. Campaign manager Jeff Weaver wrote in an email to supporters Thursday afternoon. If we all pull together today, we could wake up to that headline tomorrow. And based on the response already today, I think it's very possible. So huge, huge results again, second month in a row, where Bernie Sanders has raised 
over $43 million. I'm not sure the final number is 44 or 45 million that Bernie Sanders raised in the month of March. Um, no comparisons yet to uh, what Hillary Clinton was able to raise in the month of March. And Hillary Clinton goes to Hillary Clinton goes to fundraiser after fundraiser. I mean, it's the way that she's she's working to to bring in the money to compete in this election and compete in the general election if she is the nominee. Um, but she seems to be going to a lot more fundraisers than she's going to uh, political events where she meets the public. And I don't have hard numbers on that, but it seems when some months appear to average more than two events, two fundraising events a day, uh, seems like uh, she is spending most of her time talking to people with money and less of her time talking to the people who she wants to elect her to the presidency. And the next piece is from Charles J. Reed Jr. And it is on the Huffington Post at HuffPost.com. Bernie Sanders has better poll numbers than any candidate for president from either party. Consider his latest numbers from March 31 from HuffPost pollster. Bernie best Donald Trump by 52 to 41. Against Ted Cruz, Bernie leads 51 to 41. And versus John Kasich, it's Bernie 46 to Kasich's 44. In contrast, while Hillary Clinton defeats Trump by a margin similar to Sanders, her lead over Ted Cruz is only four points, and she loses to Governor Kasich by two, 46 to 44. Why? Perhaps someone might suggest it is because Bernie Sanders has received more favorable news coverage than Hillary Clinton. There is some limited truth in that observation. Secretary Clinton has been a special target of the right wing ever since the early 1990s. The right wing agitprop machine has spent a quarter century manufacturing Hillary Clinton conspiracy tales. From Vince Foster to Benghazi, these conspiracies, of course, have all proven bogus. Still, they are not intended as exercises in dispassionate news coverage or in truth-telling. They are meant as character assassinations. They do their job by being corrosive. For sure, Bernie Sanders has not been subjected to the same sustained level of vitriol from the right wing. But he has hardly received a adulatory press coverage. Fair, fairness and accuracy in reporting documented in early March that the Washington Post alone ran 16 negative stories on Senator Sanders in a single 24-hour news cycle. While this was exceptional, Sanders has been routinely taken to task by the press. Can the nation afford to adopt his policies? Will America ever elect a socialist? Isn't he just the Donald Trump of the left? Stories like these are routine. So, Sanders' candidacy is hardly buoyed up by the press. Still, he remains the single most electable of the presidential candidates. Why? I will submit that his electability is related to the issues upon which he is campaigning. Let's just consider a few of his most visible positions. He has argued that college must be made affordable for all, and has advocated that tuition-free public college education is a fundamental right. The basis for this position is that higher education is to the modern world what a high school education was to the world of 1930 or 1950. A college education is now the main entryway to the middle class. Polls indicate support for the broad outlines of Sanders' plan. An Atlantic Monthly, Monthly poll from early March indicated that most Americans understand that they might be better positioned for economic success with greater education. At the same time, they are frustrated by a, quote, thicket of obstacles centered on money and time that prevents them from obtaining more credentials. Bernie Sanders would trim that thicket. Indeed, his plan would help to level the playing field between the affluent few who have access to education and opportunity and the many families that are struggling in today's economy. 
And in truth, Sanders' plan would simply be a return to the policies that proved so successful in the 1950s and 60s. Some of America's greatest state university systems of that era, the University of California system and the University of Wisconsin, charged zero or nominal tuition and educated a generation of Americans. Indeed, it is not far-fetched to say that the affordable college programs of the 50s and 60s contributed substantially to the American prosperity of the latter 20th century. A second popular issue that Senator Sanders has made his own is reform of the minimum wage. The current federal minimum wage is set at $7.25. Americans instinctively know that it is no longer possible for individuals to live on such a wage. No full-time worker, Senator Sanders has made clear, should have to live below the poverty line. Hence, he has promised to support raising the minimum wage over a period of several years to $15. Again, this position enjoys widespread support. In January 2015, a poll by Hart Research Associates showed that 63% of Americans supported an increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour. 75% of Americans, including over half of all Republicans, favor an increase to $12.50. A February 2016 poll of New Yorkers showed overwhelming support for a minimum wage increase in that state, and in truth, a $15 an hour minimum wage polls well across the country. Once again, Senator Sanders' popularity is best explained by his stance on the issues. And indeed, an increase in the minimum wage is not only a popular idea, but one that would be truly beneficial to the American economy. Much of the slow economic growth we are currently experiencing is a result of a lack of purchasing power among whole classes of Americans. Give people a greater disposable income, and they will dispose of it. Raising the minimum wage would thus act as a form of economic stimulus. A third reform Bernie Sanders supports is the overturning of the line of Supreme Court cases culminating in Citizens United and the return of sanity to our system of campaign finance. Ask yourself, why would a high net worth individual contribute $5 million or $10 million to a candidate's super PAC? You contribute because you want something. You are not giving a gift because you like the candidate. You are making an investment with the expectation of a tangible return. Perhaps you want the government to deregulate your industry, or perhaps you want access to federal dollars. You give because you expect to get back. Most Americans know that this is how the system works, and they have grown disgusted by it. A Pew Foundation report from December 2015 indicated that equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats, 76%, agree with the statement, quote, money has more influence on politics today than before. Bernie Sanders has pledged to do something about the septic tank of American campaign finance. One of his most important promises has been to name to the Supreme Court only justices pledged to reverse the Citizens United line of cases. Why is Bernie Sanders the most electable presidential candidate in America? It might be that he is not only right on the issues, but in tune with the mood of the American public. And this next piece is from independent.co.uk. Bernie Sanders is first candidate to be introduced by transgender person at large rally. And this is by Rachel Revez, R-E-V-E-S-Z. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has been praised for giving transgender activists a voice at his rallies in front of thousands of people. The Brooklyn-born candidate not only has a perfect 100% score from the Human Rights Campaign, Texas Senator Ted Cruz has 20%, but he is also the first ever presidential candidate to be introduced at a rally by a transgender person. Twice. Two transgender rights activists stepped out to support Mr. Sanders this month in Oregon and Washington. Andrea Zekis, policy director, Basic Rights Oregon, and founder of the Arkansas Transgender Equality Coalition, told the audience that she has faced unequal opportunity in employment and housing 
and she was, quote, scared. Quote, the biggest change in my life happened when I realized I have a voice, she said. There are lawmakers out there who care about what I have to say and who care about when people are struggling and their families are struggling. And they are struggling. We need a leader who is committed to economic justice for all people, regardless of their race, gender, sexual orientation, or gender identity, she added. Jenny Seibert, a transgender activist who introduced Mr. Sanders at a rally in Spokane, wrote in her blog that his campaign has been, quote, shaking the ground. Quote, according to my friend Cammie, I am the first transgender person to ever introduce a presidential candidate. And all the trans people say, and all, yeah, and all the trans people say, quote, that we know of, she wrote. Senator Sanders has publicly opposed a recent North Carolina law that has legalized discrimination against transgender people. He said on Twitter, quote, It is time to end discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. This law has no place in America. His spokesperson also told the Washington Blade that he, alongside Hillary Clinton, opposes a law passed this month in Kansas, which allows faith-based student groups at publicly funded universities and colleges to reject LGBT members or members of other faiths. So kudos to the Bernie Sanders campaign for being on the right side on this issue and really publicly showing its support for transgendered individuals by including them in rallies for the Sanders campaign. And this next piece is from Huffington Post at HuffPost.com. And this is by Oliver Stone. And it's called Why I'm for Bernie Sanders. I've been in deep despair these last few months about our political landscape. This quote from Thich Nhat Hanh recently elevated my spirit. And I share it with you. Quote, when fear becomes collective, when anger becomes collective, it's extremely dangerous. It is overwhelming. The mass media and the military-industrial complex create a prison for us, so we continue to think, see, and act in the same way. We need the courage to express ourselves, even when the majority is going in the opposite direction, because a change of direction can happen only when there is a collective awakening. Therefore, it is, very, it is very important to say, I am here, to those who share the same kind of insight. Thich Nhat Hanh, Buddhist monk, from The Art of Power. Because I am, we are still here, though it's clear that the die is cast and that Clinton will win, that is, if you believe in numbers and materialism, but I don't. Not completely. I enclose here below several recent articles which you need to read to understand how difficult the situation will be in if we continue with a harder-lined version of Obama. Hillary Clinton has effectively closed the door on peace, blasting both the Palestinian peace process and the Russians in the same week. NATO is her god, the best thing the quote, exceptional U.S. has to export in this new, quote, American century. But who set this policy and who controls this country? Her point of view is steeped in the traditional post-World War II Atlanticist NATO domination of the universe. It's set in stone. No president, it seems, no democratic vote, no dissenting media can alter this. We're going to be in border resource, and forever wars for the next 10, 20, 100 years until Trump, who our shadow government will never allow to exercise power, actually said in his straight way of talking, quote, our cities go bust. Our media has been drained and made callous by war, increasingly sensationalized by TV, looking for the next high in the next headline. The more outrageous, the better. Modesty in American politics is dead. It's better to be sensational. 
Ironically, as they call Trump unelectable, which he is, it leaves you to think Clinton is the, quote, the new normal, in which case you've been deceived by the unnecessary dichotomy that Clinton actually is, quote, respectable in the same way that Eisenhower Dulles, 1950s, were respectable when we went about intervening and overthrowing governments in many countries. But the difference was they at least had the brains not to get into shooting wars. To suggest that NATO should have expired in 1991 when the Soviet Union disintegrated, I suppose, isn't questionable anymore. NATO, which has expanded to 13 countries since 1991, must be supported, and Clinton has been brainwashed by the neoconservatives to believe it's about, quote, Russian aggression, when it's the United States that's ensuring the greatest buildup on the European borders of Russia since Hitler did it in World War II. We're going to war, either hybrid in nature to break the Russian state back to its 1990s subordination, or a hot war, which will destroy our country. Our citizens should know this, but they don't, because our media is dumbed down in its Pravda-like support for our respectable, highly aggressive government. We are being led, as C. Wright Mills said in the 1950s, by a government full of, quote, crackpot realists. In the name of realism, they've constructed a paranoid reality, all their own. Our media has credited Hillary Clinton with wonderful foreign policy experience, unlike Trump, without really noting the results of her power-mongering. She's comparable to Bill Clinton's choice of Cold War crackpot Madeleine Albright as one of the worst Secretary of States we've had since. Condi Rice Albright boasted, quote, If we have to use force, it is because we are America. We are the indispensable nation. We stand tall and we see further than other countries into the future. Hillary's record includes supporting the barbaric Contras against the Nicaraguan people in the 1980s, supporting the NATO bombing of the former Yugoslavia, supporting the ongoing Bush-Iraq war, the ongoing Afghan mess, and as Secretary of State, the destruction of the secular state of Libya, the military coup in Honduras, and the present attempt at regime change in Syria. Every one of these situations has resulted in more extremism, more chaos in the world, and more danger to our country. Next will be the borders of Russia, China, and Iran. Look at the viciousness of her recent APAC speech. Can we really bear to watch as Clinton, quote, takes our alliance with Israel to the next level? Where is our sense of proportion? Cannot the media at least call her out on this extremism? The problem, I think, is this political miasma of correctness that dominates American thinking. This is why I'm praying still for Bernie Sanders, because he is the only one willing, at least in name of fiscal sanity, to cut back on our foreign interventions, bring the troops home, and with these trillions of dollars no longer wasted on malice, try to protect the homeland by actually rebuilding it and putting money into its people, schools, and infrastructure. Albert Camus, talking about the doomed Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, wrote, quote, Men of my generation have had Spain in our hearts. It was there that they learned that one can be right and yet be beaten that force can vanquish spirit, and that there are times when courage is not rewarded. It is true that the light was extinguished for generations in Spain. America was sleeping, but it finally did the right thing and went to war against fascism. I believe fascism is still our greatest enemy, and its face is everywhere in our so-called, quote, democracies. It was always about the moneyed interests that had the power. That is what fascism, and that is the danger that we are in now. Sanders talks about money. Listen to him. He talks cogently about money and its power to distort. He is the only one who has raised his voice against the corruption in our politics. Clinton has embraced this corruption. And as I said, that piece is on Huffington Post. It is by Oliver Stone. 
the filmmaker. It is called Why I'm For Bernie Sanders. And near the beginning of his uh, piece, he said he enclosed several articles below. So if you want to go on to Huffington Post and search for that article by Oliver Stone, you'll find those several articles linked. Um, most of those articles are by Robert Parry, P-A-R-R-Y. And uh, you can take a look at what is backing up Oliver Stone's opinions from that piece, why he supports Bernie, and why he is fearful of the type of government and types of actions that Hillary Clinton would continue and expand upon. And this piece is from Medium.com by Kim Dawson Brooks. It is called How Bernie Sanders Won Over My Wisconsin Family. As soon as I read presidential candidate Bernie Sanders would be campaigning at Carthage College in Kenosha, I knew we had to go. I'm quick to take advantage of real-life educational opportunities like this, so I woke the girls up even though it's spring break. As a mom to two elementary school students, I thought the outing would help the girls understand government, especially how we elect a U.S. president. When we arrived on campus, TV trucks lined the front of the college, hundreds of people wrapped around the large school track. A cold wind blowing off the lake ripped through my sweater. We wished for warmer coats as we inched towards the entrance. Frequently, the girls and I snuggled to stay warm. After an hour of waiting, employees signaled that the stadium was full. Our only option was an outdoor overflow area. By now, the cold got the best of us. We decided to leave, but it would not be without one close encounter, sort of, with Bernie. Returning to our car, a motorcade consisting of several black suburban-type SUVs sped towards us. As it got closer, it quickly dawned on us that Bernie Sanders was in one of the cars. The cars whizzed by. We waved and gave a thumbs up. Feel the burn, shouted my husband, an enthusiastic Sanders fan. Someone who looked like a campaign staffer in the front seat waved. For the kids, my husband, and even me, it was an exciting moment. We're back home now, and as I type this, the girls are writing their own story about the day a presidential candidate came to Kenosha. I watched Sanders' Carthage College speech online as he emphasized what's at stake in this election. To my surprise, my heart gets heavy as my well-orchestrated civics lessons transcend, transcends beyond the kids. Sanders' sobering message slaps me in the face. Once again, I am reminded that this election is about quality of life. No, really, it's more than that. This is about our survival as a family. The critical issues Sanders talked about affect families like mine, Sanders talked about education and how our kids can go to college without massive amounts of debt. Currently, my husband and I struggle to save for big emergencies, let alone retirement and college. Sanders spoke of the shrinking middle class and the possibility that people in my generation will not do better than their parents. Already true. When I grew up, we spent summers in my parents' summer home, located in a prestigious community. I can no longer afford in fact, owning two homes seems out of our grasp. Finally, Sanders talked about trade and, the and outsourcing of jobs to China or Mexico. This hits home as my husband and I look for new jobs and haven't found one yet. When I got up this morning, I thought, wow, this visit will be a good experience for the kids. Now I'm thinking, I just found the person I want to be the next president of the United States. And from Salon.com by Robert Reich. Quote, Bernie did well last weekend, but he can't possibly win the nomination. A friend told me for what seemed like the thousandth time, attaching an article from the Washington Post that shows how far behind Bernie remains in the delegates. Wait a minute. Last Tuesday, Sanders won 78% of the vote in Idaho and 79% in Utah. This past Saturday, 
He took 82% of the vote in Alaska, 73% in Washington, and 70% in Hawaii. In fact, since, Mar- since March 15, Bernie has won six out of the seven Democratic primary contests with an average margin of victory of 40 points. Those victories have given him roughly a 100 additional pledged delegates. As of now, Hillary Clinton has 54.9% of the pledged delegates to Bernie Sanders' 45.1%. That's still a sizable gap, but it doesn't make Bernie an impossibility. Moreover, there are 22 states to go with nearly 45% of pledged delegates still up for grabs, and Bernie has positive momentum in almost all of them. Hillary Clinton's lead in superdelegates will vanish if Bernie gains a majority of pledged delegates. Bernie is outpacing Hillary Clinton in fundraising. February, he raised $42 million from 1.4 million contributions, averaging $30 each, compared to her $30 million. In January, he raised $20 million to her $15 million. By any measure, the enthusiasm for Bernie is huge and keeps growing. He's packing stadiums. Young people are flocking to volunteer. Support is rising among the middle-aged and boomers. In Idaho and Alaska, he exceeded the record primary turnout in 2008, bringing thousands of new voters. He did the same thing in Colorado, Kansas, Maine, and Michigan as well. Yet, if you read the Washington Post or the New York Times or watch CNN or even MSNBC or listen to the major pollsters and pundits, you'd come to the same conclusion as my friend. Every success by Bernie is met with a story or column or talking head whose message is, quote, but he can't possibly win. Some Sanders supporters speak in dark tones about a media conspiracy against Bernie. That's baloney. The mainstream media are incapable of conspiring with anyone or anything. They wouldn't dare try. Their reputations are on the line. If the public stops trusting them, their brands are worth nothing. The real reason the major media can't see what's happening is because the national media exists inside the bubble of establishment politics centered in Washington and the bubble of establishment power centered in New York. As such, the major national media are interested mainly in personalities and in the money behind the personalities. Political reporting is dominated by stories about the quirks and foibles of the candidates and about the people and resources behind them. Within this frame of reference, it seems nonsensical that a 74-year-old Jew from Vermont, originally from Brooklyn, who calls himself a democratic socialist, who's not a democratic insider and wasn't even a member of the Democratic Party until recently, who has never been a fixture in Washington or in the Manhattan circles of power and influence, and who has no major backers among the political or corporate or Wall Street elites of America, could possibly win the nomination. But precisely because the major media are habituated to paying attention to personalities, they haven't been attending to Bernie's message or to its resonance among Democratic and independent voters, as well as many Republicans. The major media don't know how to report on movements. In addition, because the major media depend on the wealthy and powerful for revenues, because their reporters and columnists rely on the establishment for news and access, because their top media personalities socialize with the rich and powerful and are themselves rich and powerful, and because their publishers and senior executives are themselves part of the establishment, the major media have come to see much of America through the eyes of the establishment. So it's understandable, even if unjustifiable, that the major media haven't noticed how determined Americans are to reverse the increasing concentration of wealth and political power that have been eroding our economy and democracy. And it's understandable, even if unjustifiable, that they continue to marginalize Bernie Sanders. And that, again, is by Robert Reich. Robert Reich was the labor secretary under President Bill Clinton. And I think the title of his book after he left that post kind of sums up his feelings of that experience. The title of his book was called Locked in the Cabinet. 
Uh, I think that Reich was the single best appointee um, for, of Bill, Bill Clinton's uh, Bill Clinton's presidency, and I think that the things that Robert Reich stood for and supported were overwhelmed by uh, Bill Clinton's policy positions and what he was willing to fight for. Uh, Robert Reich currently is Chancellor Professor of Public Policy at the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California at Berkeley and has run, written a number of books. He's written 13 books. His latest bestseller is called Aftershock, The Next Economy and America's Future. Uh, Robert Reich does a lot of... Um, great pieces on our economy and how our economy has left the bulk of us behind. Um, if you want to see a, a, a fantastic film that Robert Reich uh, was part of, was a significant part of, look for the film Inequality for All. And it's definitely a, a really eye-opening piece just the statistics about the income gap that started in the 1970s where all of the money that increased productivity has earned since the 1970s has stayed, has boosted the profit margin of the, the companies and none of it or a marginal percentage of it has actually gone to increasing the worker salaries. So it's, it's a pretty amazing piece. So check that out when you get a chance, inequality for all. And finally, in this episode, a piece from common dreams.org. And this is by Lauren McCauley, M C C A U L E Y. Economist argues, quote, pie in the sky, Sanders will in fact, quote, make economy great again. I'm not a fan of some headline writers. As the Democratic Party, as its Democratic primary race tightens, Hillary Clinton has been trying to cast opponent Bernie Sanders as unrealistic and, quote, pie in the sky. But a leading University of Massachusetts economist says such criticisms are, quote, dead wrong. And in fact, the Vermont senator's proposals are precisely what will, quote, make the economy great again. In a column published at The Nation on Tuesday, Robert Poland, distinguished professor of economics at, Mass, at UMass Amherst and co-director of the Political Economy Research Institute, examines the major policy items under Sanders' economic agenda. These include a single-payer health care system, increasing the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, free tuition at public colleges and universities to be financed by a Robin Hood tax on Wall Street transactions, and a large-scale public investments in renewable energy and infrastructure. Poland's conclusion? This program works handily. Quote, All of his major proposals are grounded in solid economic reasoning and evidence, Poland states. Quote, overall, the Sanders program is capable of raising living standards and reducing insecurity for working people and the poor, expanding higher educational opportunities, and reversing the decades-long trend toward rising inequality. It could bring Wall Street's dominance under control and help prevent a repeat of the financial crisis. It will also strongly support investments in education, clean energy, and public infrastructure, generating millions of good jobs in the process. Pollan's analysis builds on previous research, including his own. It takes a big-picture look at the potential impact Sanders' policies, refuting claims made by Clinton and her supporters that they would stymie job and economic growth. When discussing the minimum wage increase, Pollan dismisses the idea that employers would not be able to absorb the cost of the wage increase. Citing a recent study by PERI colleague Jeanette Wicks-Lim and himself, Pollan states, quote, 
even fast food restaurants, which employ a disproportionate share of minimum wage workers, are likely to see their overall business costs rise by only about 3.4% per year during a four-year phase-in for a $15 minimum wage. Pollan argues that the overall economy will benefit, quote, from the gains in equality tied to the minimum wage increase. Greater equality means working people have more spending power, which in turn supports greater overall demand in the economy. Referencing a paper that he, along with a team of UMass economists, published earlier this month, Pollan also concludes that the Inclusive Prosperity Act, co-sponsored by Sanders in the Senate and U.S. Rep. Keith Ellison in the House, quote, could conservatively generate around $300 billion per year in new government revenue through a financial transaction tax, which, quote, would be more than enough to finance in full the Sanders proposal to provide free college tuition for all U.S. students. At the time of that writing, National Nurses United Executive Director Roseanne DeMauro published a column at Common Dreams, which she wrote that it is, quote, no surprise that, quote, Wall Street moguls and their surrogates in the media and Washington hate the legislation. But, she added, shamefully, many in the liberal and Democratic Party elite, from Hillary Clinton to her surrogates in the Democratic National Committee and Congress, have also attacked Sanders' social change agenda as, quote, pie in the sky. Contrary to the criticisms lobbed at Sanders' bold economic plan, Pollan concludes that the agenda would both grow the economy, quote, at a healthy rate, and at the same time, quote, deliver standards of well-being for the overwhelming majority of Americans, as well as the environment, in ways that we have not experienced for generations. And that is why I support Bernie Sanders. He has bold ideas that will benefit all of us. And will really move our country forward in many ways. Um, really kind of wipe out some of the uh, detrimental steps that have been taken in the last few decades that have really decimated the middle class and the poor and profited the establishment and the wealthy elite and that will wrap up this episode of bernie 2016 if you want to reach out to me you can reach out to me at bernieus2016 at gmail.com you can follow me on twitter at bernieus2016 or check out my webpage at bernie-2016.com and as we go out this evening we will hear I Still Believe by Delfina, which you can find on YouTube at Delfina Music. Thanks for listening. That in America we have millions and millions of working people who are working hard but are not making enough money to put bread on the table or to take care of their kids, and that has got to end. Taking time to help the ones with the lesser fate Gotta get yours, push the line and get your way Credit cards, hearts, and getaways I'm tired of fighting this feeling I think I've had enough It's time to pull back all the curtains Millennials are rising up Men with machine guns trying to be valiant Women starving, looking like Plastic surgery, quickest way to fit in So 
Shopping malls make the headlines turn into an instant star. 